nearly every speech, every interview Bernie Sanders has given over the past 30 years, he's called for us to join the rest of the modern world in offering universal health care, a living wage, and other basic social supports like free childcare and paid family leave. We're the wealthiest country in the world, he's argued. Other countries handle it just fine, he's pointed out. And our people are suffering desperately because we don't have these things. On paper, we have two major parties in this country. One that bills itself as believing that the role of government is to support the well-being of working people and to provide a basic standard of living for all. And another which believes that government is a hindrance to free markets. But both parties seem united in the belief that when it comes to basic social programs enjoyed the world over, America is unique insofar as we just can't afford it. How do we pay for it is the question that has dominated not just right-wing commentary about the Democratic primary, but intra-party discourse as well. The plan is going to cost at least $30 trillion over 10 years. That is more on a yearly basis than the entire federal budget. Because I don't see any point in taking away Americans' choice to have employer-based uh, health insurance and, and to force them to pay $33 trillion in taxes for that privilege. That is until the coronavirus. The sheer magnitude of the crisis before us has thrown the stakes into stark relief. And folks across the political divide are now for watered-down versions of the policies Bernie has long advocated for. I'm glad, genuinely, that folks across the political spectrum from Kamala Harris to Donald Trump are in favor of free testing and or treatment for coronavirus. But taking that position begs the question, how can one admit that it's wrong to die of coronavirus because you can't afford testing and or treatment, but not cancer, diabetes, or any number of other diseases which drive half a million Americans into bankruptcy each year and result in 68,000 deaths annually. Neither possible explanation lands well on the ethical ear. One argument is that people who are sick from the coronavirus can spread it as asymptomatic carriers for weeks. So it's beneficial to those of us with insurance for everyone to be insured. But do we want to be a country that's invested in the well-being of lower income folks only insofar as we're interested in our own well-being? And even if we were to admit that's the case, the cost of emergency room visits is paid for by all of us, meaning that poor people getting sick always has a cost, both ethical and financial. The other tacit answer to why we can't have nice things outside the context of a pandemic seems to be we can't afford it. But Corona has shown that how can we pay for it is, as it has always been, a canard. Last week, Congress passed a $2 trillion relief bill. This after spending $1.5 trillion on a loan injection to banks in mid-March. $500 billion of the relief bill is going to large corporations with no strings attached. And guess what? I haven't heard a single congressperson ask, how do we pay for it? 
That's because politicians and financial experts have always known that the so-called national budget does not work the same way as yours and my personal household budget. And where there's political will, there's very little risk to simply funding the policies we need to ensure basic rights for everyone living in this country. Now, understanding the economics of this can be difficult. That's part of how politicians have been successful in misdirecting the public about these issues for years. So this week, I called on Stephanie Kelton, formerly an economic advisor to Senator Sanders, professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University, and perhaps the country's most prominent expert on how to pay for it to help us understand why a better world is, in fact, possible. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics driving the Bernie 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from my apartment in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much, Professor Kelton, for joining us here today. I think that in the midst of everything that's going on with coronavirus, with the multi-trillion dollar relief bill that's been passed at this point, people are opening their eyes to the possibility of what the government can spend when it wants to spend it. And more and more folks who weren't already kind of on the Bernie train, as it were, are open to this idea that how can you pay for it is kind of the fiction that we on the left have always understood it to be. And in so many ways, you are the the queen, the expert of all experts on that question of how do you pay for it and why it's the wrong question to be asking. So I want to ask you first and foremost, how have we managed to pay for what we've now said that we'd pay for? Well, thanks for having me on first. And um I know we're going to get into this and peel back the layers because it's a lot to wrap a person's head around. We have just been very badly educated. Everything we've been taught to believe about the way the government spends money, about the way the federal government's budget works. We've been taught forever to think of the federal government's budget the way we think of our own personal household budgets. And So when we hear people talk about things like, you know, the federal government wants to do student debt cancellation or Medicare for all, and we got this inevitable, how are you going to pay for that? We think that the federal government has to come up with money, that it needs to find the money. Where are you going to find the money for that? And that it has to go out and collect up money in order to have money so that it can then spend money. We do that because, first of all, people tell us to think like that. We've been trained to think like that. And we understand that in our capacity as individuals, we got to find money if we want to spend some money. Nobody ever bothered to stop and walk us through why the federal government is different. So when you asked, how is the government spending now $2.2 trillion that they've just committed in this latest package, The answer is that they're going to do it the same way that they've always done it. They're not doing magic or voodoo or some new jujitsu sort of thing. It's Congress writes a bill, right? And this particular bill is a large spending bill. Whenever Congress wants to spend money, it basically approaches things in one of two ways. It can say, we have written a bill and we would like to spend $2.2 trillion 
into the economy. And here is how we're going to quote unquote pay for it. So in that same bill that they write, they could write another piece, right? Another set of text that says, we're going to come up with the money. In other words, we're going to increase taxes and we're going to say that that's where we're going to get the money to spend this $2.2 trillion. That's one way to go. And in Washington, that would be what people refer to as pay-go, right? That you don't add to the deficit, that every dollar that you're going to spend into the economy is going to be fully offset. So you're going to raise a dollar of new tax revenue. The other way is the way they're doing it now, which is to write a bill with just one set of instructions, with just one plan, right? We are going to spend $2.2 trillion and that's the end of it. So it's not quote unquote paid for in mm-hmm. Washington speak, meaning that this spending will add to the deficit. So we've been led to believe that by by the right for decades, that adding to the deficit is the worst possible thing that could happen, that it has all of these awful effects, that it destroys the economy, that it raises inflation. Are these things not true? Well, they're not true just by definition. It is true that deficits can get too big. That's true because a deficit spending is just one form of spending in the whole economy. If the government engaged in deficit spending and it just kept deficit spending and the deficits kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, there is always the risk that at some point, the deficits grow large enough to produce inflation, which you mentioned. And so that's always a risk as the economy, I would say, you know, as an economist, we use language like as the economy approaches its full employment resource constraint. As you get to full employment and the economy is using up all the workers that are available, all the factories are running at maximum capacity, the machines have all been hired and put to work, there's nothing left available sitting idle, unemployed in the economy. Then if you try to continue spending, all you're going to do is compete for resources and drive up their prices. So you're going to get an inflation problem. But is deficit spending as dangerous as we've been taught to believe? The answer is clearly absolutely no. It is not. As I like to say, every deficit is good for someone. Okay, so when the Republicans in December of 2017 passed their big tax cuts, Mm -hmm. they did so understanding that this was going to massively increase deficits. Now, they did so understanding also, I think, that increasing deficits was going to be really good for certain folks. The way that they cut taxes delivered huge financial windfalls. You know this, right? 83% of the benefits go to people in top 1% of the income distribution, the corporate tax cuts. You combine all that, and now we know that the true cost is more like $2 trillion in terms of how much it will end up adding to deficits over 10 years' time. The Republicans were more than happy to increase the government's deficit because I think they really do understand that the government's deficits show up as surpluses in some other part of the economy. In other words, their red ink becomes someone else's black ink. Their deficits are surpluses, financial surpluses in some other part of the economy. What they want to do is direct those financial surpluses into the pockets of the people who least need the help. So I think that what holds up most people is this idea of an inflation, an inflationary effect. Older 
folks in particular remember various points in American history where they've dealt with what it feels like to live in inflation, long gas lines and all of these kinds of things. And so I, I want to help people understand better and myself understand better since I managed to get through all of college without taking a single economics course. What actually causes inflation when when it is that the deficit would get so large that it would cause inflation and when it doesn't? Because I've heard you I've been aiming to understand this for a while and I've heard you explain it really well in some other contexts where I've wrapped my brain around it for five minutes. And then by the time I <laughs> finished the podcast, I was back in a no man's land of confusion. So I, I want to understand this idea of inflation happening, as you touched upon just there, when there's no more place for the money to go, where there's somehow no more useful activity or, or purchasing power or something for the, for the money to be used in. Can you help me understand that part of it better? All right. First, let me go on the record as saying inflation is a very complicated phenomenon. Economists do not understand, and, and they will admit it. People like this guy, Daniel Tarullo, used to be on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Okay, The Fed is supposed to be the agency that's responsible for maintaining inflation, right? keeping a lid on inflation, and they aim to produce no more than 2% inflation. That's the target. And when Daniel Tarullo, his term on the Fed board expired, he went out and he gave a speech that made a lot of headlines because he said, the Fed, the Federal Reserve has no reliable model of inflation. So you got to start at least with an understanding that at the highest levels, the very institution we put in charge of controlling inflation admittedly does not have a good model of inflation, right? It's not something they understand well. So, okay, so let's have that, have that said. Second, economists kind of think in, in terms of two broad baskets when we think of inflation. There's inflationary pressures that can come from the supply side of the economy, and we tend to refer to that as cost-push inflation. So an oil price shock, which is the kind of thing that happened in the 1970s and then produced inflationary pressures as everything became more expensive to transport and get to the end consumer and, and gas prices went high. And so, but it happened because the price of a critical input, fuel, began to increase. And then it fed through into other prices in the economy. Another kind of inflation we think about is demand pull inflation. When the economy is just really kind of running at full speed. And there's Milton Friedman said, too much money chasing too few goods, mm -hmm. right? This idea that everybody's trying to spend, spend, spend into an economy that has reached its productive capacity. It's like if you try to order one more car, Tesla can't make another car. They're producing all that they can't. Ford can't make another car. GM can't, you know, you can't book a hotel room. You can't get a seat on an airplane. Everything is at capacity. And so your economy is at full employment. There's no slack in the economy anywhere. And if consumers and others try to continue to spend in an economy that has reached its full employment resource capacity, then presumably you drive prices higher. So you think in those two broad cost push, right? The cost of important inputs are increasing and that feeds through or demand pull. Usually in the U.S. and around the world, we have run our economies with so much slack, you know, living below our means. We run our economies with lots of unemployed resources, most importantly, labor, right? So there's always that space available. There's room to allow people to spend more, whether it's government, 
whether it's private sector, there's room for more spending and the economy can handle it because if you place another order, the business will say, oh, good, that's a new order. I can produce more output and I can meet that higher demand. But at some point, you could push things too far and inflation would be the punishment for that. So what you're saying is that we've never really experienced in this country the, was it the demand pull inflation? It has so long since we had an economy that was running on the auto mechanic terms, all pistons, all firing on all pistons or whatever the saying is. You could imagine a World War II economy where you had workers working double and triple over time, women entered the workforce. I mean, that's a tight labor market. We had some inflationary pressures and we managed the inflationary pressures in a variety of ways during and immediately after the war. But yeah, you have to run your economy where your labor market gets so tight that it becomes more and more difficult to spend money into the economy without creating bottlenecks in production and bidding up wages and other prices in the economy. Do you think people are confusing the kind of more recent memory of what happened in the 1970s and that kind of fear of inflation with the kind of inflation that could happen if there was if there were too much money in the economy, but something that we haven't seen for over half a century? Yeah, I mean, even now, with this 2.2 trillion and what the, you know, the Fed is committing to doing you know, the, the quantitative easing and this new lending facility that could be leveraged to do $4 trillion in lending and all this. And people hear these numbers. And for a lot of people, it takes them straight to Weimar, Germany, Zimbabwe. They go right to hyperinflation because what they hear is the Fed is printing money or the government is printing money. And they've been somewhere along the lines. They've encountered this argument. They've heard this idea that the way that you get inflation, especially very high inflation, is when governments so-called print money. Okay. And what I'm suggesting is that it's not how the financing happens that gives you the inflation risk. It's the spending itself right? It's Mm -hmm. if you, if your economy can handle more spending. And so look where we are, we're sliding, we're in a recession now, we're sliding down. We don't know how deep and how protracted this recession is going to be. But what we do know is that lots and lots of people, millions already are losing their jobs and more is on the way. Millions more will lose their jobs. So we're going to find ourselves in an environment where there is tremendous slack in terms of the ability to hire labor, when we come out on the other end of this, there could be millions and millions of people who've lost jobs and could be paid to come back to work, given useful things to do, whether it's in a Green New Deal type of program or other kinds of public service employment. It gives you the space to do large-scale public investment because you're going to have lots of slack, factories that have shut down, right? They'll be eager for orders. They'll be happy to produce and supply more. So may I ask then, out of some personal curiosity, what then is going on in the kind of Venezuela example where people have these images of, you know, burning barrels of currency because inflation is so insane or carrying around millions of dollars to go buy a loaf of bread? Hyperinflation is really kind of interesting. There was a study that was done. If people are interested, they can use the Google machine They can type in Cato of all places, okay? It comes out of the Cato Institute, which as you know, is a libertarian. This is not a left-wing progressive organization, but three researchers produced a study uh, maybe four or five years ago on hyperinflation, and they put it out through the Cato Institute. 
And what they did is said, we want to understand hyperinflation. So we're going to try to track down every single instance where hyperinflation has happened on earth in human history, right? And they found 56 examples of hyperinflation. And then they said, we want to understand what caused hyperinflation in all 56 cases. It's really fascinating. And the, the thing that's, I think, the most interesting isn't what they found, but what they didn't find. What they didn't find was a single case of hyperinflation happening anywhere in the history of the world because technocrats, governments were trying to run a full employment economy and printing money. Never happened. So you mentioned Zimbabwe. So what did happen? So they study each of these cases. In the case of Zimbabwe, what you had was Mugabe coming to power, taking land away from whites and redistributing it. Freedom fighters were rewarded for their efforts. The land was redistributed. And initially, it went to blacks with little and frankly, probably no experience farming the land. And they just didn't initially know how to to produce. And so what you had was just a collapse in an agricultural economy, no food production. And so food prices just went soaring and there's your hyperinflation. When we think about too much money chasing too few goods, it wasn't the too much money piece so much as it was the too few goods piece. And so it was effectively a supply shock, right? Just a collapse in output that sent prices soaring. So it's not what people think, right? People think Zimbabwe happened as the government came in and printed money. That's not the story at all. So that's really, that's actually extremely helpful to me. You have largely covered up the enormous economic gaps I have in my very expensive but inadequate education. So help us then, those of us who have been following the news, to understand what this package means for American workers and where it still fails to help folks who are now facing the reality that because of coronavirus, because they've been told to stay at home uh, to, to prevent the continued spread of the disease, there are so many industries that are shutting down as a whole. And people who are having to stay home because their kids are home from school, there's a lack of childcare, all of our systems are kind of collapsing on them on themselves. How is this package meant to stem the negative effects of that? And where are there still gaps? Yeah, it is incredible what this is revealing, right? The the shortcomings, not just in our existing social safety net, but in our trade policies with supply chain issues and the lack of redundancies where we can't produce our own masks and our own ventilators are, it's laying bare a lot of things. And so to the extent that this most recent phase three piece of legislation is beginning to address some of those things. I mean, look, Brianna, I'm I'm frustrated because we're not, at least at this stage, we're not taking this opportunity to fortify the holes in the system for good. We're patching things. We're doing short-term Band-Aids, right? And when we turn to things like unemployment insurance, we're saying because we don't have a system in place, because we haven't built an infrastructure to support an economy to, for a resilient economy that is capable of supporting families and workers when the economy goes through these inevitable undulations that we run for these familiar sort of programs. We go, oh, we have to have expanded unemployment insurance and we should have a couple of extra months and we should have this. But when that inevitably proves inadequate, 
then we try to come back again and again. And so what's frustrating is we've already seen 3.3 million people filed for jobless claims last week, right? This is just beginning. And so instead of thinking more creatively and looking at what some of these European countries are doing, just backstop payroll, keep people in their jobs attached to their employers. What we've done basically is we've asked people to step out of the workplace for a period of time to help us save lives. So I think about this and I think what we've done is just redefine your job description. Your job is not to go walk into work and serve coffee or make meals or cut hair or you know what I mean? We're changing your job description and right now your job is to stay home and to help us flatten this curve, right? And so we don't want you to become unemployed as a consequence of asking you to do the social distancing and all these other sort of things. We need to keep you employed through this, through this process. You say, what is it doing? Well, it's nibbling around the edges and trying to provide some 70% or 100% for a period of time and a little bit of income with some means testing and that sort of stuff. But it's, it's nowhere near risen to the challenge of the moment. What's kind of confusing to me is that if Republicans kind of cynically understand that the deficit concern trolling is cynical, like they don't actually believe that you'll get the inflation as we discussed, they're very happy to run up deficits for corporate corporate buyouts. Why, if not only for political reasons, they wouldn't say, all right, let's just go to town give a huge corporate bailout, and in addition, at least give the people more than this $1,200 check. Let's let's throw them a $2,000 check, a $2,500 check, since that's a drop in the bucket of all what they really care about is giving these big giveaways to big corporations. And then, you know, you can make arguments about how people are going to spend it in the economy and the money is going to flow upward anyway, and doesn't it benefit everyone? And then for political reasons, at least, they would have more of a leg to stand on. What is this what feels like a a compulsion against doing the bare minimum to help working people out? You know, it's such a good question. And I don't know that there's an answer that fits the Republican mold, because I've heard some of them say things like, you know, we heard Lindsey Graham, for example, talking recently about how he doesn't like the idea of paying people who are at home. Like there's just something that doesn't work for him about that idea. I've heard others say things like, well, it's almost like opening the floodgates. Once you demonstrate that you can do this and you said, write a bigger check, how do you shut that down? I mean, the people will know now that you could just write checks and provide people with basic income support. And what if they kind of start to get used to the idea and they want a decent life all the time? You know what I mean? I think it's sort of, for some there's concern that, uh, you know, and then there's Donald Trump, who I read the other day, I don't know if you saw this or if this is true, but I did read this, that he is signing those checks that normally the checks would be signed by some civil servant in the past when the government has done things like this, like, you know, when Bush mailed the $300 checks to every individual or 600 to families, a civil Mm -hmm. servant writes that Trump wants his name, he's going to sign it because he wants that check to show up and have Donald J. Trump because that's going to make people have that emotional, hey, thank you, you know? Um, so when you say, why wouldn't they want to do that? You right. know, it's some people would say, play, play Santa Claus, right? right. S- send people um, some income to help them through a tough time. And you, you would expect to reap some reward in terms of the politics after something like that. 
Yeah, it's it's really bizarre. I mean, the super cynical version of it that that I and my friends talk about is that everything is basically rigged to make sure we're all, no matter how much you earn, feeling like you're living basically paycheck to paycheck. So if you do what everyone tells you to do to be successful and you go to college, you have your student loans eating up just enough of your income and your housing eating just up enough of your income so that you have to stay in the job that you don't necessarily want forever, perhaps, and that you can't quite get free enough to do anything that's a little bit creative or gets you off the treadmill or enables you to have the kind of mobility, geographic freedom that would keep you from being so beholden to big industry. And that it feels like if people did wake up and realize that the government could just give you health insurance, right? So much of what keeps us in jobs that we might not otherwise want to work, working for consulting companies and law firms and doing things that we might not otherwise want to do is this idea that, well, I got to be employed. I got to have health insurance. I can't take this break to maybe start my own business and start to work for myself because God help me if I fall sick during that fallow time. I got to stay in the city because I've got my mortgage here or I can't afford a mortgage because I got these rent payments and these student loan payments. So I have to stay working in this metropolitan area and not go back home to my family in Kansas where it'd be much more affordable for me to live. That there's like layers and layers and layers on of kind of systemic economic obligations that prevent us from thinking at all creatively about how we could live our lives. And if some of these pressures got lifted, if suddenly you had insurance no matter what and a basic standard of living no matter what, then we would be free to make a lot more demands about what our world looked like and how it could look differently. Yeah, no, if, imagine if you had a federal job guarantee, right? Just a standing job offer. Imagine if you had that. And that came with the right of every American to, this is FDR, right? to a job that pays a living wage, that has benefits attached to it in the form of sick leave, in the form of retirement security, in the form of health care. If you bundled a wage and benefit package together that was available to all people, then right there you've done, you've provided people an alternative to the challenges you just spoke of. Not being able to leave because you're tied to a job and you can't be in the community that you want to be in because you've got the healthcare tied to the job and the other sort of stuff, you would always have the right to step out and take as an alternative that package if you chose and doing public service employment as part of how you earn a wage and benefit package in that job program. But we, it, it takes a lot of creative thinking to redesign alternatives like that. But if we had something like that in place now, really the time to put it in place is not when the economy is collapsing, but when the economy is strong so that when the economy slows down, instead of people being thrown out of work and ending up unemployed, they could transition right into a program like this where they would sustain employment through the business cycle, keep healthcare. So if you were designing a solution, if you are our, our interim president, which I think pretty much everyone listening would love a great deal. What would you, how would you design a package to try to get us out of the mess that we're in right now? I have pushed from the moment that it became that we were going to ask people to socially distance and that this would result in people um, stepping out of the workplace that, my God, I said, please keep people on payroll. I mean, that's the way to do it. Keep them on payroll 
as they're kept out of the workplace, keep them attached to their job, their employer, keep their, maintain them whole through this process. And so that's why I talk about redefining your job. You're still, you still have a job to do and we're still going to pay you to do that job. We're not going to cut your pay because you start cutting people's pay and what happens? I spend everything I make. So if I don't bring in exactly as much as I brought in last month, then I can't make some bill, right? I need to pay my rent. I need to pay my car payment. I need to pay my student loan. I need to pay my electric bill, my cable bill, my phone bill. I have recurring expenses. And for me, the way to go, and I used terms like nationalized payroll. I mean, I was saying that from the very, very beginning. And it's exactly what you see in places like Denmark and Norway and even the UK. The British government has stepped up and said 80% of payroll, we will backstop payroll. And that prevents the unemployment that we're witnessing because you keep people employed, right? They're out of the workforce, but they're still employed. So the Kelton package begins with the backstopping of payroll so that we don't have this landslide of jobless claims that we're facing now. Is it ever important? I mean, we, we talked earlier about how a certain amount of deficit spending isn't a problem, doesn't cause inflation, et cetera. But, you know, at what point is lowering the national debt a priority that's genuine? Never. Never. Never, 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 never. So this is the problem. We need to change our language. We need to change the words that we use to describe what we're actually doing. It is so unhelpful that we refer to outstanding U.S. treasuries, government bonds, as debt. It's not debt like household debt. It's not dangerous debt. It's not, it, it carries with it that connotation that somebody's on the hook for something, that mm-hmm. there's a burden being placed on the next generation. or the next, That's not the right way to think of it. So when I talk to people about this stuff, I say, just think of, this thing we call the national debt as part of the U.S. money supply. We have interest-bearing dollars. That's what we call the national debt because treasuries pay interest. So they're dollars that pay interest. And then we have dollars that don't pay interest. So when the government is running deficits, let me see if I do this with a, like an example. Let's say the government, I'll be government and I'll, I'll do deficit spending. So here's what happens. So I have these green dollars. Okay. This is me, the government, and I'm going to spend some green, non-interest-bearing dollars into the economy. So let's just say that I spend three of these into, we could call it three trillion. Okay. So I'm going to spend these, my, my three green, into the economy, and that's deficit spending. Let's say I, I deficit spent those. So now I come up and I have these U.S. treasuries and I have three trillion of these. And I say, oh, I was just deficit spending. So now I'm going to sell these three treasuries. And what that means is you're going to give me back these and I'm going to give you these. Okay. So now I borrowed. That's what this was. I took these back. I sold bonds. Okay. And these are what we label the national debt. These pay interest and these do not pay interest. All I've done is recycle some of my dollars into treasuries. That's what government borrowing is all about. It's not dangerous. I don't have to come back later. When these mature, these are 10-year treasuries, when these mature, I take them away from bondholders and I replace them with these. You see, it's all done through 
debiting and crediting bank accounts. When the government sells treasuries, somebody gives up some green dollars and they get some yellow dollars in exchange. When the treasuries mature, we debit the securities account, the savings account, and we credit your regular old checking account. So what you're saying is when we spend money, we create quote unquote debt and to pay for that debt or to offset it, we issue bonds, which are basically other people buying the bond, like giving, giving, you know, buying an assurance that somewhere down the line, they're going to get even more money back because it's interest bearing. We get ourselves $10 in the deficit. I find someone to say, hey, do you want to buy this U.S. Treasury bond for 10 bucks? They say, great, I'm going to buy this $10 bond. And 20 years from now, they get $15 back or whatever it is. And so what you're saying is it's not really debt or like, it's not that I don't have the money. It's just that I'm saying it's paid for already through the bond that's been sold. The most important thing, Brianna, that people don't understand is the reason the federal government is not like a state government, not like a household, not like a private business is because the government spends first. The government spends first and then it can tax and remove some of what it has spent from my hands or it can borrow. But those operations come after the spending. So let's do this. If I'm government and I spend $100 into the economy and I end up taxing just $90 away, okay? So I spend $100 in, I tax $90 away, I, I am deficit spending. I'm government, my ledger will record minus 10. Kelton is government minus 10 on my ledger. But my deficit deposited $10 into some part of the economy. I spent 100 in, I took 90 back out, I taxed 90 out, somebody has 10. That's my deficit, okay? Mm -hmm. So now that I've placed $10 in the economy somewhere, I come along behind there and I say, whenever I run a deficit, I match my deficit spending with bond sales. I say, I'm selling these, who wants to buy them? Well, I've already placed $10 in the economy. My deficit put the dollars in that can now be traded out for the treasuries. Here's the really important part of the story. I don't have to do that. Why would I need to borrow my own currency? Selling bond is not an imperative, it's a choice. They don't need to borrow order to spend. They've already spent the dollars in. So why do they? So I think there are a couple of different answers. One is we used to be on a gold standard. When the US was on a gold standard, we had what was known as a convertible currency. This used to be a convertible currency. It was convertible on demand into gold. Well, gold is a finite resource. There's only so much in your gold reserves. So if you start making lots of these available and your gold reserves aren't growing, then you potentially have a problem, right? People want to convert these into something that you can run out of gold. So what the government would do was to take some of these out of people's hands and replace them with treasury bonds, which were not convertible, mm. right? You had to wait until the bond matured and get your cash back. So one reason is a historical legacy of the gold standard. And then the other is that treasuries were really important for carrying out monetary policy until fairly recently the Federal Reserve relied on U.S. government bonds to conduct 
we call open market operations to set interest rates. So this is a really good story. I, t- I talk about this in my book or listeners could find out on their own just by using the Google machine and learn a little bit more about this. But very briefly, when Bill Clinton was president, the mm-hmm. federal government's budget moved into surplus for the first time, I believe, in my lifetime, 1998, 99, 2000, 2001. The federal government's budget is in surplus. Now, Democrats celebrated this as a great achievement a sign of fiscal responsibility, right? This was tremendous. The Congressional Budget Office looked at these federal government surpluses and they projected in their annual budget outlook that the government was on track to run surpluses far as the eye could see and that we were going to retire the national debt. It would all be paid off, completely gone, eliminated, sayonara. Okay, so... The Clinton administration is looking at this. Their Council of Economic Advisors publishes a report every year called the Economic Report of the President. In that report was a chapter. Well, there was supposed to be a chapter. It was, it was drafted, and it was called A Life Without Debt. And they were writing this chapter and planned to include it as this wow, look at where we're headed, right? We are going to run budget surpluses, pay off the national debt, and we will be, as a country, debt-free, magnificent, until they started writing the chapter and thinking things through. And then they realized, oh, shit, we're (laughs) going to pay off the national debt. So they went into panic mode. And so you say, why would they go into panic mode at the thought of retiring all of the national debt? Wouldn't that be great? Well, you and your viewers can check this out. And the reason that we know about this chapter is because NPR's Planet Money did a FOIA request and they got that chapter forced out into the public domain so that now we can all have a chance to look at it. Otherwise, they pulled it. They buried it. They were not going to publish it because they were so concerned about what it would mean if we ran out of U.S. treasuries if we basically eliminated them. So when people talk about paying down the debt or eliminating the debt, it sounds like a good idea because it means, you know, if I could pay off all my debt, I would be happy, right? I want to be debt-free. No mortgage debt, no card payment, no student loan. Great. But if the federal government pays off its debt, it means there are no more U.S. treasuries because that's what the national debt is. It's just the outstanding stock of government bonds, assets. People hold them. They're in pensions, right? They're in portfolios. So the Federal Reserve was using treasuries to set interest rates. So they would buy and sell treasuries to change the level of reserves in the banking system and thereby set the key policy interest rate. That's a long way of saying without treasuries, the Fed couldn't set interest rates, which is basically carrying out monetary policy. So they panicked and they decided to just, you know, the Fed does not rely on treasuries to set interest rates in the modern era. We stopped doing that. So now to change that key policy rate, the Fed just announces a new rate and they pay interest on reserve balances. If the Fed wants to pay a higher interest rate, it announces a higher interest rate, and that becomes the new interest rate. If they want to cut rates to zero, they announce that they will begin paying zero on reserve balances. They don't need treasuries to carry out monetary policy as they once did. They're doing QE, and so they're still buying treasuries today, 
but there's no, you said, why do we still issue? Why do we still borrow? We don't have to do it for historic reasons. We don't have to do it to protect gold reserves. We don't have to do it to set the overnight interest rate. I'm not saying that we should eliminate them. I'm just saying that it's a problem that we call it the national debt because it makes everybody panic. So how is everyone getting away with this? How How is it that whenever a politician stands up and says, austerity, we have to cut social security, we have to, you know, people on both sides of the aisle might be saying things like this. We, the national debt is a problem. There's a national debt clock that conservatives love to have ticking up on websites all over the place and whatnot. Why is it that nobody, and I, principally I'm looking at Democrats because I feel like it's our responsibility, who's standing up and waving the flag and saying, this is all a specter. We don't have to be doing this. There's actually no negative implications for us having a significantly high national debt. It's like meaningless. Why is it from a political perspective that we're letting everybody continue with this misunderstanding of how things work and that there's not some more effort to political re-education and economic re-education to folks so we can start winning some of these some of these battles. You're preaching to the choir, <laughs> let me tell you. You know, I've had conversations and I continue to have conversations. Uh, most of them I can't talk about, but just in very, very generic terms. I was on the Hill not too long ago. And the good news from my perspective is that there are Democrats who are undergoing a rethink and they have reached out and we are having conversations about how to begin to shift the public narrative and to help with the education process. And so I feel in many respects hopeful because I see a willingness on the part of some to recognize that the stories that they've been telling are have problems, that they could be helpful in terms of providing a better understanding. Sometimes I'll, I'll say to people, you know, it's not what you say, but what you don't say. So just mm -hmm. don't volunteer things like, oh, and then they're adding to the deficit and they're increasing the debt. Why say that? Because when it's your turn, right, if you end up in the White House and with the Senate and the House, you're going to want, you're going to end up running deficits too. And the debt is going to increase while you're in charge. So you might as well not vilify these things now. You might as well begin to talk in terms of how would we redeploy that deficit so that it is being used to help the people who most need the help. Right now, we've got billion-dollar deficits that are largely engineered to people for, to help people who least need the help. We're going to inherit those. We don't want to try to eliminate them and pivot to austerity and all that kind of stuff. But we can rejigger the budget in ways that put the resources where they can do the most good. And so we may continue to run trillion and a couple of, I don't know, you know, what the economy will call for in the future, what it can sustain. But we need to be talking in those terms. It's hard for any politician to go first on this because who, who's going to align with you? If you step out first and start talking in ways that are such a significant departure from the way that everybody else in Congress talks, the way all pundit class talks, and, you know, it's, it would take a certain gravitas, a lot of courage to go out there and try to reshape public understanding so anyway, that I think it's going to take, you know, guy that we both know pretty well says change doesn't come from the top down. It always comes from the bottom up. So I believe that. I think that ultimately 
we're going to force that narrative to change. It's going to be the people who, when that next politician after this pandemic is over and our politicians start talking about the need to go after Social Security or why we can't have you know, programs and we can't afford things, I think we need a groundswell of people to say, no, no, don't do that. We, could, we can afford it because I understand enough to know that your budget doesn't work like ours. And so I'm not going to accept these old talking points. And I think it's got to be from us. Well, thank you for that political education. To the extent that it's from the bottom up, there are a lot of people listening to this podcast that are going to be much more able to have those arguments because of your willingness to join us here today. So I really do appreciate it. Can you let folks who are listening or watching know where they can hear more from you, where they can read or find your book? Anything else they should know about your output? Yeah, yeah, sure. You can, um, I mean, I'm on Twitter at Stephanie Kelton. And uh, if you want to see a quick copy of the book, it is coming out June 9th. So you can find it. Uh, you can pre-order. It's available for pre-order. The Deficit Myth. I want to say the name in case people are only listening to the podcast version. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay, great. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. I, I have a lot to chew on. I will definitely be getting a copy of that so that the knowledge that you have just imparted to me stays longer than the duration of a treadmill session. <laughs> Thanks, Triana. That's it for this week. Hear the Burn is produced by Ben Dalton and Christopher Moore. Let us know what you think at heartheburn at berniesanders.com or else take to Twitter with the hashtag heartheburn. I love to read your feedback on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get these episodes. So be sure to rate, review, or like us whenever you get a chance. Till next week.